As you can see from the outline on the back of your bulletin, the title for today's message is The Messiah Revealed. Today, and most of you are aware that we would be starting something new, but today we start a new study in the Word of God. For the benefit of all that are here today, we have just finished the exposition of 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians. And for those of you not familiar with Fellowship Bible Church, this is what we do. We gather together to uh, have an exposition of the Word of God, verse by verse, line upon line, chapter upon chapter, book upon book, that the whole counsel of God might be taught to the people of God. We have also, after completing the study on 2 Corinthians, did take a pause between that and our study that we begin today in order to do a mini-series on prayer. We've spoken on prayer many times, but we did a mini-series on prayer with a little different twist or perspective to it to enhance our lives, to incorporate into our life the importance of prayer. And hopefully that has been accomplished. In the past, we have gone through a number of books, and I have done that as a pastor, as has Pastor Stringer and others, as we have taught the Word of God to you. But I want you to be aware as a congregation, it has been quite a long time since we have gone through one of the Gospels in the morning service. The last one that I have preached, and some of you were here, some of you were not, but was through the book of Matthew. And it's been a while since we have be, been in a gospel account. And now the mystery has unfolded. Some people have been waiting. What book is he going into next? Well, we are beginning a, an exposition of the gospel according to John. We will be studying the gospel of John as a congregation on Sunday mornings, verse by verse, line upon line, chapter upon chapter, until we complete the book. Generally, let me give you some introduction to the book and then our passage for this morning, but generally, the Gospel of John, according to John, is probably the most loved, it is probably the most read, in fact, many tracts, that is what is given out, is the Gospel according to John, uh, is the most read and is probably the most taught by people as far as the Gospel accounts, this particular book of John. It is different even to the casual reader. If you were to pick up your Bible and you've never read it and you start to read through the gospel accounts, the gospel according to John, you will notice, is quite different from what is referred to as the synoptic gospels. Now that big word synoptic comes from the concept simply to see together. That's literally what it means, to see the other accounts together. And in many ways, the other three gospel accounts are very similar as far as the areas that they address, though from different angles at times. But when you come to this one, the gospel according to John, it stands out. It stands out to the reader of the Word of God. For example, let me just call a couple of things to your attention. When you come to the gospel according to John, there is no detail, per se, and I do understand chapter 1, and we will deal with it verse by verse, but there is no detail as to the birth of Christ in this particular account. There is nothing as far as a deep concentration on the baptism 
or the temptation in the wilderness of Jesus Christ. There is no record of the transfiguration in this particular gospel account, nor a concentration of the agony in the garden, which is a very crucial text. In the gospel, according to John, there's no list of the apostles. If you want to find out who the apostles are, you go to the synoptic gospels, and you will see the apostles listed. You will not find long dissertations and parables in this particular, like Matthew chapter 13 just came to my mind, where you see the parables of the kingdom of God. You won't find that in this particular gospel account. There is nothing related to the Lord's table, which is for us today in instruction that we are given. There's nothing in this particular account that is given to us in that area. There is no dis long discourses such as the Olivet Discourse that you find in the scripture found in the gospel according to John. Just to get into your mind, even those of you that are very familiar with the word of God, of just how different this particular gospel account is. And for those who have a fascination with or even look down upon eschatology and the study of eschatology, there is no long dissertations related to eschatology whatsoever in this particular accounts. You have to go to Matthew 24, for example, to see some order uh, that is given. And as you know, we're studying the book of Revelation on Sunday nights, and uh, we will be in Matthew 24. But you don't find those dissertations in this particular account. Now, that does not mean that those areas uh, are not important, nor does it mean that John is contradicting anything that's said anywhere else. Not at all. Every one of the accounts is different, and what it means is that is not John's concentration. John's concentration is not in those areas. All of the gospel accounts, and the word gospel, by the way, means good news, because that's what it is. It means God's story. It means good story. And it has become known as the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the good news about Jesus Christ. They are all equally inspired. And though man would have debate with that, this word, and I'll make some more comments on that in just a few moments, this Bible that you are holding in your hands, and if you're not holding one, let me put this out here as a pastor this morning. And ushers, you be ready for this. If you are not holding a Bible in your hand and you need a Bible or want a Bible, before you leave today as our gift at the time of Thanksgiving, we will get a Bible into your hand. We want one in your hand. And uh, in what you are holding is that which has come from God, that which is inspired. And all of the gospel accounts are inspired. All of the gospel accounts, John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all picture Jesus Christ as Savior. They all picture Jesus Christ having died on the cross and risen from the dead and the significance of his work. But they supplement one another and have different concentrations. And let me just briefly go over that with you as an example. In Matthew, the concentration is centered toward the Jews. And it doesn't take you long. As you open up that particular gospel account, you find out that it starts with the son of Abraham and the son of David so that the Jews can make that transition from the Old Testament and understanding that the one they're looking for that has to come through the line of David has to come through the line of Abraham. So Matthew concentrates on the Jews. Mark, on the other hand, if you were to read his gospel account, you would find out that his concentration 
is more Gentile. In fact, it's more Roman. But a Gentile seems to be his concentration and his audience that he's addressing. When you come to Luke's account, Dr. Luke has recorded for us in great detail uh, information related to Jesus Christ, and he identifies the fact specifically his audience is to one called Theophilus, whom, whom he identifies. And then he expands upon that as he goes through his account. What about John? As we come to John and we come to his gospel account, John's account we will see in just a moment, and when I expand on it, is generally an even evangelistic account of the gospel written to all men. You say, what do you mean all men? Go with me to John chapter 1 for just a moment. This is just brief introduction. And look at verses 6 through 10, the first chapter of John. We will go verse by verse. I'm not starting in verse 1 today, as you can see, though. But in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He's speaking about John the Baptist. You'll learn about that later. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was a true light which cometh into the world, enlightening that who enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then he continues to expand. Well, we'll see the detail of that later. But you can see John was sent as a witness to point people to this light, this light who does enlighten every man in some sense. We'll see that. But he, as we will see, is given more an evangelical approach to get a message across. According to D.A. Carson, and I quote, after the originals were copied, they were all bound into one codex. Now, today we're used to picking up a Bible like this. It's got 66 books in it. But according to Carson, as you go back in history and study it, even in the early church, they had what they called the codex. And most of the time, it was sewn together. They didn't have printing presses back then. And they would write on parchment and then sew it together. And what they found with the early church was they had one book that was called the Gospels. And by the way, I'm taking this just for a second to help you out even in understanding what you're reading. And they had one book in a codex form that was called the Gospels. And then as you open that up, inside the one Gospel account, just to show you the continuity of them, inside of that Gospel account, you would then find the Gospel according to. You see, that's where man put on that hot title. This isn't the Gospel of Matthew. It's not the good news about Matthew. This is not the good news about John. This is the Gospel, the good news according to John. The perspective that John had, Matthew had, Mark, Luke, and John. They all had their own input as God led and guided, but they were one unified gospel because there is only one gospel referring to Jesus Christ. So it saw unity, but then there was uniqueness among the writers, and it all came together. So today, let's consider just a few. I am not going to go into great detail, but a few background things to the gospel according to John and then we will get into what I want to deal with, verses 30 and 31 this morning. Who is the writer of this book? And I say the writer because he's not the author. The author is God. The writer is John, and he is John the Apostle. I'm not going to go into the depth of that. He's the brother of James. 
He was part of the inner circle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you understand, this man was simply a fisherman. This was not someone who went to school to become an apostle. This was not someone who had a certain degree of education, so it was expected of him to do this. This was a simple fisherman that Jesus Christ himself went and personally selected out and always kept him within an inner, inner circle. I will stop right there for just this moment to tell you this. God is concerned about and interested in little old me and little old you. Sometimes we get lost in this world and we think, you know, I didn't run to be president of the United States. I don't serve in Congress. And by the way, if we happen to have somebody here that serves in Congress, praise God, we pray for you. All right? But it, we sometimes think of, I'm no CEO or I'm no up there in this particular position. How important am I? Very important. God selected a, a simple fisherman to be not only in his inner circle, but to be used of God to record what you and I are going to study. Some of the most frequently quoted passages come from this particular account. Many of you know John 3.16. If you see people in football games or basketball games, behind the scene there's this John 3.16, and everybody's going, what is John 3.16? comes from the book we're going to study. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 11.25, unfortunately, most of the time, it is probably one of the, it's probably the second most quoted passage from this book, but it's unfortunately usually at, you don't hear it because it's at uh, funerals. So if uh, someone is saying it in reference to you, you're in the casket, okay? But it is, you, the, what it is that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and many even denominations use that, resurrection and life. Where does it come from? This book. And then the other one is John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, and I've already quoted it this morning, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me or through me. So this book is filled with quotations that we often use. This book also contains the great seven I am's, and we'll study those, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to mention them to you this morning because you see the significance. If you look at the title, it says the Messiah revealed. What do you mean? Well, in this book, we're going to read and study such things as this. Maybe some of them you've heard of. Jesus is going to say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Yes, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And you will see that as we study this book, the Lord Jesus Christ referring to who he is. Now, while I could give you tons of background information, I even gave more when I did the survey of the scriptures on Sunday nights, I want to get to the meat of today's message. So let's take a look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 in, pre in preparation for our exposition for the book. What is the purpose of the revelation? And here's where I will expand on what I said earlier. What do I mean revelation? A revelation is to simply reveal something. And if it's revealed, it means it was not known. It means we did not see it. It is being disclosed to us. That's what the Bible is. 
Now, there may be many in the audience. There could be some in the audience. There could be few in the audience. There may be just one or two. I'm not sure. But who would look and say, you know, the Bible, that's kind of an antique book, you know. That's just some religious book that we look back to. I'm going to tell you, my friend, you're holding in your hands a revelation from God, something that was revealed, divinely revealed. And just to illustrate it to you, do you know there are things in this life, whether you've ever picked this book up or not, that you would not know apart from this book. You say, what are you talking about? Is there life after death? The only place that's going to give you that answer is found in this book. Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? This is the book that reveals the information. You might look at your TV set and see things about angels. Do you know that whether you're looking at TV that says angels are in the outfield or angels are over here or angels are in, you know, the Bahamas or whatever it is. The only reason they even know about angels is because this book tells you about angels. That's true. Whether or not this world got here and how it got here. Do you know that scientists will continue all their lives to study the universe because God instructed them to? But none of them were ever here. God was. And he says, let me tell you how the earth got here. And to this day, men are still discovering how the sun is held in place and the, the planets rotate in the sky. Science continues to explore and find things out when, if they had looked in the book, they would have had the answers. The first president of the United States died because the medical profession had not read the book. Because the scriptures say the life is in the blood. And back then, the medical profession thought that by bleeding people, they would heal them. They bled him, and he died because they took too much out and so forth. All the answers to life and godliness are found in this book. It is God's revelation to us. Okay, what is the purpose of this revelation? Well, John tells us, look at verse 30 now, that he tells us in the book that he's writing, there were many other signs, therefore, that Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. What he tells us, first of all, is it, what it does not contain. The book that we're going to study does not contain all the signs. What does it mean, signs? We know what a sign is. A sign, you're driving down the highway, and it says, Methuen, four miles. You get to four miles, and it says, Methuen, exit, so-and-so. You take the exit. If you were coming to Fellowship Bible Church and you wanted to know, you look at a website, it gives you the signs how to get here. When you get here, you've got here. There are signs in this book. They are miraculous signs. They are miraculous displays of God's power. But he didn't record them all. There are many more that are not recorded here. But he recorded those that were done by, some of them that were done by Jesus in the presence of his disciples. They were selected miracles that he chose. And he's going to tell us why he chose selected ones. By the way, there's nine of them. You know the ones that we're going to come to? Here they are. The water turned into wine. The healing of the official son. The lame man that's healed. The feeding of the 5,000. The walking on the Sea of Galilee. The healing of the blind man. The raising of Lazarus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fish that were caught by the disciples. Those are the only nine that are recorded in this book. Why did he just select those when the Lord did many other why just select these? Verse 31. Look at it. John chapter 20, verse 31. 
The ones that are recorded in this book are not all of them, but selected ones by John. Why? Verse 31. This is not Pastor Dan's explanation. John tells you, but these have been written. The ones that he has selected have been written. Why? Purpose clause. That. Here's the reason. That you may, first of all, believe. That you might believe. That you might what? Come to faith. That you might come to faith. And by the way, believing, you might have facts in your head. I can believe, picking on our president for a second, I can believe that uh, George Bush is the president of the United States. I can believe those facts. That doesn't mean that I might have faith in him. It doesn't mean I might act my, order my life after him. And there are people that believe facts even about Jesus Christ. There are people that believe he did come into the world. There are people that believe that he did die on a cross but they're not truly believers. They're not Christians. They call themselves Christians, but they're not followers of Christ. They just believe a bunch of facts about him. But John's purpose is that that belief goes a lot deeper, that the belief becomes faith. And you'll notice it's not blind faith. People say Christians have blind faith. Oh, no, no, no. Notice what we've already said in a limited way. He's given us nine signs so that we can look at them, what he's going to talk so that we can look at it. And the purpose is, so in looking at it, he would come to faith, to belief. Believe what, he tells you. Watch. It's not just believe anything, but believe that Jesus is the Christ. First of all, let me just spend a second on the word Jesus. It is the Old Testament word for Joshua. We find it in the New Testament, Jesus. Is it any Jesus? Is it any person? No. Why? Go with me just to chapter 19 of the same book. Chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 19. It's an easy way to remember it, right? 19, 19. And Pilate wrote an inscription. This is when Jesus was put to death. And put it on the cross, and it was written what? Jesus who? The Nazarene. That's the part that John wants you to know about. The king of the Jews. John wants you to know that he's talking about the same person in chapter 20. Whatever has been written, and the miracles that have been recorded, have been written because John has a purpose in mind. That you might believe that Jesus... Not just any Jesus, not just any Joshua, but the Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. What about him? That he is the Christ. That he's the Christ. What is that word? That is the Greek equivalent for the Old Testament word Messiah. John is telling you that God has already revealed to us who the Messiah is. Who, the word Messiah, by the way, came from the word in the Hebrew that actually, literally, we all know it so well today theologically that we forget its basis. But it came from the Hebrew word that meant to smear. That's where it came from. Because a lot of the people way back in early, early ages, what they did is they would smear things to identify them and 
commit them to a god. And they did it with rocks, they did it with animals, they did it with all kinds of things. They would smear an identification. And it became known in Hebrew as time went along to be known as anointing, the anointing of something. And by the way, in scripture, that's what happened. The priests with Aaron, for example, they were anointed with oil. The prophets, if you look at one of the Psalms, Psalm 105, for example, it talks about the prophets, they were anointed, they were set apart to God. And kings, when King David was set apart, he was anointed, he was a set apart to God. And then it progressed so that in the Old Testament, as people were looking back, and it goes back to Genesis chapter 3, really in its roots, when man fell into sin and he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, when that happened, he had to be cast out of the presence of God. And I'll expand on that in just a moment. But he had to be cast out of the presence of God, and God made a promise. And he said that while Satan had enticed man to sin, and while he would suffer, be able to even hinder or hurt the heel of the one that would come, there would be one that would come that would crush Satan. That was the Redeemer. That was the anointed of God. And when you come to John chapter 20 in the New Testament, verse 31, what he's saying is, is what I've written here in this book is written so that you might understand that Jesus, that is Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. This is the one that man needs to hear about. That's too loud back there. It's echoing. He is the one that man needs to hear about. It's interestingly enough used in a passage I used last Sunday night in Daniel chapter 9 where it talked about when the Messiah would come. People have been looking for a deliverer, one that could deliver man. Why? It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Some of you are visiting here for the very first time. Some of you I have not met yet. You need to understand something. Even though I don't know you, I know something about you. And I'm going to tell you something for one second that you're not going to like. You are a sinner. You say, Pastor Dan, that's not acceptable today in the year 2008, if I get it right. I had to pause for a second. 2008, because I wanted to say the 21st century. To say somebody's a sinner? Yes. How can you be so bold as to say that? You know what? I'll go even bolder. You've committed murder. Say, I've never shot anybody, never killed anybody. Have you ever hated anyone? Then you've committed murder in your heart. You've lied in your heart. You've committed adultery in your heart. You've coveted in your heart. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Let me read to you. Stay right there. Let me read to you, I think it's Psalm 53. That's what just came into my mind. Psalm 53. Yes, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one that does good. You say, what do you mean? Listen, verse 2. God looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there was anyone who understands and sought after God. Every one of them is turned aside. They are together become corruptible. There is none that do, does good. No, not one. They, have, they are the workers of wickedness, no knowledge, who eat up my people, etc., etc. What is he saying? 
God looks down from heaven, and in comparison to him, not to one another, there is none righteous. All men are sinners. That is why man needs salvation. That is why man needs deliverance. That is why man needs a Messiah. Why? An anointed one that God could send. Why couldn't he send any other man? Why couldn't it be a pastor? Why couldn't it be a priest? Why couldn't it be some religious figure in the world, a rabbi? It could not be. Why? Because we are sinners as well. Only the perfect one that would come from God. Well, who is he? He tells you, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And look at verse 31. The Son of God. Now, I'm well aware that in our day and age, there are people who say, see, he's the Son of God, he's not God. Would you turn with me to just one passage in this book? Go, John, go to John chapter 5 for a moment. I want you to see what that meant to a Jew. John chapter 5. Just go to right to the heart of it, verse 18. In verse 17, he called God his father. Verse 18. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking to kill, all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, which would make him his son. And what did they do? They saw that as making himself what? Equal to God. Why? Because he is. Here's the story in a nutshell for you. When you go back to John chapter 20, he's saying, this gospel account is written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the son of God, that he is God. Why? All men are sinners and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. I just read that to you out of Psalm 53. And what God is saying is, I have to come to this earth myself. And we're going to learn that in John chapter 1. He had to come to earth himself and take on flesh. Why? So that he could die. Why? And pay the penalty and price for sin. What do you mean? What penalty? For the wages of sin is death. We're all going to die physically. Everyone in this room. And you know what? You know it, but you don't want to think about it. You know it but you don't want to even ponder the possibilities. But the reality is death came because man has sinned. But God has provided something. Look at the rest of John chapter 20, verse 31. Why does he want us to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Here it is. And that believing you may have what? Life. What do you mean life? I'm living. You're living physically, and you will die. Are you alive spiritually? You say, well, I hope I am. I think I am. You're only alive spiritually if God has quickened you. How does that happen? By faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Because Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the narrow gates. He is the door. He is the giver of life. And you can only have life through his name. The result of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ with true saving faith, and that again is action. Everyone in this room put faith in that pew. Why? You not only believed it would hold you up, you sat down on it. Some of you fell asleep in it. Some of you can't wait to get out of it. 
but you sat down in it. True? You exercise faith every day. We just had this discussion. When you came here, if you came by automobile, you had faith that even though there was combustion going on when you turned that key and sparks flew and everything, gas went through the line, you had confidence you weren't going to blow up in a smithereen. Why? Because you've looked, you've observed, and you put faith and trust, and you took action and turned the key. With Jesus Christ, John is saying, I'm present presenting some things in this book with one goal in mind. It's so that you can, by looking at that facts, see that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the anointed one of God. He is the true Messiah. He is the Son of God, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself a servant, and came and took on flesh, and went even to the death of the cross, to, so that those who would believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John's purpose in writing this book and why we're going to study it is his tremendous gospel presentation from beginning to end, something that we needed to be reminded about. This book is all about presenting the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the only way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You say, I don't understand what it means to be the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, no one can come unto the Father. Where is the Father? In heaven. No one can come unto him but by means of me. Are there other mountains, other religions, other ways to get to God? You're not going to like it, maybe. But no, it's narrow. Why? It's not my choice. It's God's choice. He loved us so much that he has provided the penalty and satisfaction for sin, and he is justified in his son, the spotless lamb of God, who knew no sin, becoming sin, to satisfy the righteousness and the penalty. He took upon himself flesh so that he could die, because that was the wages of sin. That's why the last part of that verse that I began to quote says, but the gift of God, salvation is a gift. We have come to Thanksgiving. And you might be saying, you know, this had nothing to do with Thanksgiving. It had everything to do with Thanksgiving. God gave a gift. And his desire is that you have life through the name of his son. And the greatest thing that can happen to have you give Thanksgiving and praise at this time of year is not just the freedom that we have in the United States of America and a national holiday and the ability to be with parents or friends and relatives, but it's to be thankful to a God who loved so much that he sent his son and provided salvation and the anointed one, Jesus Christ, has come. And by faith in him, you can have, look at verse 31 again, by believing you can have life and that's spiritual life alertness to God, understanding who he is, and coming to know him. So that men and women, boys and girls, can come to faith in Jesus Christ and be given eternal life. That's the last part of the responsive reading in Colossians. That we can have forgiveness for our transgressions. All of our transgressions. He paid the penalty for it all. 
And it brings us to the challenge at the end of the message for today. So where are we going, congregation? We're going to study the gospel according to John, and we're going to see a marvelous revelation of who Jesus Christ is. In my opinion, the most revealing gospel as to the deity of the one that saved us. It's a tremendous gospel to understand so that we can give the gospel message to others that they can understand the tremendous work of God. Salvation is a gift. You cannot earn it by good works, by Ten Commandments, by coming to church, by reading a Bible, by being whatever you want to be. You can only come to salvation by accepting the gift of salvation provided through Jesus Christ. Where are you? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth to you? Don't answer that out loud. Who is he to you? I don't know. Kind of a moral man maybe that lived sometime in history? He was that. A good leader maybe. He was that also. A good teacher? He was the best. He was all of those things. But is that all he is to you? Is he to some of you just a religious fanatic that sometime lived and sometime passed? Let me really get home. Is he just to you a myth that somehow existed that maybe has no influence on the world? Is that all he is to you? Or worse? Is he just the name that you choose to curse with when you don't know what else to say? Have you ever thought about the fact that the world that you and I live in, at work, in your neighborhoods, there are even children who don't know who Jesus Christ is that will use his name in vain? Why is that? Because it's a very unique individual. He's the anointed of God. He's the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. You can believe a lot of those things about Jesus Christ, but until you come to the place that you believe by faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that God has sent, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, who in his work has paid the penalty and price for your sin personally. When he died on that cross, listen, he was dying to satisfy the righteousness of God and to pay the penalty for sin. And I'll close with this illustration, because <clears throat> many know it. They've heard the story of Jesus Christ, and they know there were three crosses. And they also are wise enough to know and have been taught that there were two others that were on the cross. One did not go to heaven, and one did. But they don't take the time to think. One of them did go to heaven and was with Christ. How do we know that? Because Christ said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. That person never got down. For, that person was a murderer, according to scripture. The person was a thief and deserved what he was getting. He never got down from the cross. He never had an opportunity to be good to those people who were in front of him. He never had an opportunity to be baptized. He never had another opportunity to go to church. He never had another opportunity to take out the scrolls of the Old Testament 
and read through the Old Testament. He only had one opportunity before dying to do one thing. And that was to recognize, by God's grace he did, that this one who's dying on the cross does not deserve what he's getting. And he didn't. Because he was dying in place of that other man. He was getting what he deserved. Christ wasn't. And he said, remember me when you get into what? Your kingdom. He recognized who that was. And that one that was on the cross, who was satisfying the righteousness of God, was the only means by which anyone could get saved. And it still is today. And he offers eternal life. My friend, if God's speaking to your heart, not Pastor Dan, but God is opening up your heart and the understanding of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and you've never trusted in Christ, you don't need an invitation to come here forward. You don't need some special certain prayer. All you've got to do is recognize in your heart of hearts that you are what? A sinner. In need of salvation. And then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. You can do that right there in your pew as we bow our heads. You don't need some magical formula. It's true repentance where I come to God and turn to him and exercise faith in him. Truly, thanksgiving can have all its meaning if you've come to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And I know many of you regularly attending a fellowship Bible church. Today's a good day to take a step back. Oh, you might be grateful for your job. You might be grateful for your wife, your children, or just grateful for your health. Grateful for the things that, that, those are all good. But if you are here today as a believer in Jesus Christ, take a step back and ask God to create in you a new heart, restore to you the joy of your salvation, that you might just truly be thankful and rejoicing that you have eternal life. That by God's grace, he's opened up your understanding to salvation. And our prayer for those of you who have not yet come to that place is that this will be the greatest Thanksgiving you ever have. That today would be the day of salvation when you trust in the Messiah of God who's paid the penalty of sin and satisfied the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you with great anticipation of this book that you have before us. We look forward as a congregation to studying it. Might no one in this room as many times as have ever been through this book or are in it now ever get satisfied with thinking they know it all or they've read it enough. Might you open the word of God to us in a fresh way that we might understand the person of Christ in what you've done and see this book in light of the revelation that it's given. That we might have life through his name Father, we might follow him. For fellow believers, we pray that you'd help us to just afresh, anew, be thankful for the salvation you've so graciously provided. And if there be one or a hundred in this room that have not truly in their heart come to Christ, they know facts, but haven't exercised faith, 
have not recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the only way, truth, and life, might you and your grace open up their hearts to that understanding that they might have the gift of life, that through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, they might be saved. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.